This week in KMA Land, Fremont County Board tables right-of-way permits for wind project. Iowa House passes carbon pipeline regulations. Study claims harm to Iowa farmers if pipeline projects are blocked. Swanning calls plague Iowa schools. And KMA Land financial leaders react to recent bank closures. I'm Mike Peterson. Another episode of the long-running daytime drama as the turbine turns took place in Fremont County this week. At its Thursday morning meeting, the Fremont County Board of Supervisors tabled action of right-of-way permits for Invenergy Shenandoah Hills Wind Farm Project regarding removing trees in the county right-of-way. The board approved the permit application for the project back in July and subsequent road use and decommissioning agreements in December. County Engineer Dan Davis says the tree-clearing permit would cover three separate areas within the county right-of-way to allow inlets to participating landowner property for equipment to construct the wind farm. Davis says the permit is the same that would be requested by a resident or the work done by a utility company to clear brush or trees. No different than if the county went out to cut because somebody had a problem with this being in their way or Mid-American taking care of the trees that were getting close to the power lines. He adds most of the right-of-ways on gravel roads are around 33 feet from the center line or just over 16 feet in either direction, and any trimming would have to remain within that boundary. While they have yet to get an exact plan, Davis says the county will also review the routes that Invenergy proposes to use for transporting their equipment per the approved road use agreement. However, after hearing from some pushback from residents and the application being tied to a project connected with an ongoing lawsuit, both Supervisors Chair Chris Clark and Supervisor Clint Blackburn favored tabling the application for further review. In my opinion, without our legal representation here, um, I'm not comfortable signing a work in the right-way permit, to be honest. So it needs to be reviewed by, by our attorney, and uh, we, I would have to table that permit. In my, that's, that's I what think, I think. I think that's the best thing to do at this point until our county attorney can review it to make sure that, just like you say, that we're all on the same page. In a related business, the board and several residents also discussed a moratorium on future wind project permit applications. County resident Ida Van Syok suggested the temporary moratorium so the county could review and revise its 2020 ordinance governing wind energy conversion systems. Particularly, Van Syok says the county should review its setbacks for non-participating landowners. I don't think that setbacks should be from a residence. I think they should be from a property line. Because if it's me walking out my door, part of my yard could be in the setback. Or it's okay, I should say. Because if it's from my residence, that's not fair to those of us that didn't sign up for it and are not getting any compensation for it. Current setbacks for non-participating landowners are 1,600 feet from a residence or at least 1.1 times the turbine's height from the property line. Van Syak also suggested the board implement different acceptable decibel levels during the day and night and set them from the property line. She also recommended the board review the limit on the number of turbines in the county, which is currently 150. If you look at the setback from the Missouri River the less hills, it shoves everything over on the eastern side of the county. And then you want to look at the wildlife management areas. Up, there's one up by Randolph. So that would have a two-mile setback. There's multiple cemeteries up there that have a half-mile setback. So now you're cramming more in a smaller vicinity. 
And several residents, including Van Syok, also questioned why the county didn't do more when they said over 90 homes were left off a project area map made by Invenergy that showed setbacks from non-participating residents. When asked about the ordinance and its development, the board declined to comment with litigation currently pending in Iowa District Court between a local citizens group and the county regarding its wind ordinance. Further discussion and possible action on a moratorium are expected at the board's regular meeting next week. Well, this week marked major developments at the State House regarding carbon pipeline projects. By a 73 to 20 vote, the Iowa House Wednesday passed House File 565, which requires carbon pipeline companies to acquire 90% of the necessary land for a project before being able to use eminent domain. The bill also lets farmers seek compensation years down the road if crop yields are depressed in the area around the carbon pipeline. Representative Stephen Holt is the bill's lead sponsor. The Iowa Utilities Board oversees hazardous liquid pipeline permits. The Denison Republican says the legislation is needed due to feeling the project should not be considered public use which is often used to allow for eminent domain. I believe it's incredible mental gymnastics to conclude that these pipelines are for public use. Yes, these pipelines are important for ethanol and for agriculture in Iowa, but that does not qualify them as public use akin to power lines, propane gas, or highways, but rather they are for public benefit. Meanwhile, opponents of the bill, including the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association, have stated that restricting the carbon pipeline projects could jeopardize the ethanol industry. Holt emphasized the bill is not about stopping the construction of pipelines, but to ensure they do primarily through voluntary easements. One of the three pipe company, uh, pipeline companies has no intention of using eminent domain, and we would likely not be having this discussion were it not for the issue of eminent domain. Two pipeline companies have chosen to draw their maps in a very narrow way and try to use the blunt force of government to seize the property of others, perhaps, in my opinion, to save money and time. That is the bottom line, and that is why we are having this discussion in the People's House today. Lawmakers voting against the bill felt it didn't go far enough by allowing any use of eminent domain. Meanwhile, Representative Bobby Kaufman disputed claims that the bill would cripple the ethanol industry. I find it to be fascinating, the timing of all of the different supporting studies that have come out magically the weeks that we're doing floor debate. I find their lack of existence in the last couple of years. We've been asked to pass year-round E15 mandates, extensions of tax credits, and various other things that I as a farmer completely support but never attach those arguments where if you don't do this, ethanol is going to die. Meanwhile, others voting against the bill, including Democratic Representative Ross Wilburn, feel the legislation is about politics rather than policy. It undermines the role of the utility board. It's not going to appear on the floor of the Senate. And even if it did, the governor will not sign, in my opinion, evidenced in part by the fact that she hasn't lobbied for this like she did with the voucher bill, the gender-affirming care bill, or the government realignment bill. Among KMA land lawmakers, Representatives Tom Moore and Devin Wood voted in favor of the bill, while Representative Brent Seacrest voted against it and Representative David Seek was absent. The bill now heads to the Senate. Food and Water Watch Iowa also held a rally outside the state capitol late Wednesday morning supporting the legislation to limit the use of eminent domain for carbon pipeline projects. Supporters fired the latest salvo in the continuing debate over carbon pipeline projects this week. 
Phase two of a study examining the ramifications of carbon sequestration projects in Iowa's farm economy released on Monday indicated farm income of the state could drop by more than a billion dollars annually and that corn leaving Iowa without added value would jump from 6% to 44% by the end of the decade. David Miller is chief economist with Decision Innovation Solutions, which conducted the study on behalf of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Miller says the typical ethanol plant premium of 16 cents per bushel would disappear if CO2 pipeline projects are stopped. Moreover, he says exporting corn without the pipeline would mean residual cost of approximately $800,000 per year or 35 cents per bushel. Beyond that 35 cents of statewide average, it's not equally distributed. We see southwest Iowa probably would see about a 10 cent drop in corn. But we could see up to about a 70 cent drop in corn price in central Iowa because of moving from a very positive basis to a negative basis. Miller also says a lower basis would mean an 85 percent decrease in profits on corn production and a loss of $43,000 annually for a typical 1,000 acre farm split 50-50 between corn and soybeans. It's a combination of lost revenue and probably some additional costs. Uh, it is likely that that corn is going to have to be stored longer. That corn is going to have to, uh, again, travel much more distance to find an an equitable market. Phase one of the study claimed that 75 percent of the state's ethanol production would contract or migrate out of the state if carbon pipeline projects are curtailed, leading many plants to shut down. Speaking of studies, Pottawatomie County officials this week backed a land impact study regarding pipelines. During its regular meeting Tuesday morning, the Pottawatomie County Board of Supervisors unanimously approved a $600 contribution to the Iowa Association of Counties' efforts to conduct a soil compaction study through Iowa State University. The move comes as nearly 2,000 miles worth of pipeline had been proposed across the state between the three projects, one of which is, of course, Summit Carbon Solutions Midwest Express Pipeline, spanning much of western Iowa. Summit's project would also cut through the eastern portion of Pottawatomie County County Auditor Merlin Hauser says the study was launched in October of last year and adds that ISAC is attempting to get as many counties as possible, particularly the nearly 70 impacted by the proposed pipelines, to chip in for the study. When they were putting the Dakota pipeline in, apparently they were working in mud and cutting big ruts and really messing up the uh, soils and they're still not getting a very good crop out of it after two years. Legislation is also discussed in the Iowa House to set voluntary easement requirements for pipeline companies before they can use eminent domain. While not disagreeing with the supporting the study, Supervisor Tim Wickman says much of the information is already available regarding a pipeline's impact on the soil. Thus, Hauser says the Planning and Zoning Commission could also look into a potential policy. I was going to call Matt Lyon and forgot to see if that might be uh, something that you could put in your ordinances on uh, if the soil moisture is above a certain percentage then uh, no work shall be done. Previously ISAC officials said they hope to present the findings from the study to the Iowa Utilities Board. The IUB has tentatively scheduled evidentiary hearings on Summit's permit application beginning in late October. 
Iowa became the latest state swept up in a disturbing trend, erroneous reports of school violence to local law enforcement agencies. About 30 police and sheriff's offices in Iowa received so-called swatting calls Tuesday morning. During Governor Kim Reynolds' press conference, Iowa Public Safety Commissioner Stephen Baines confirmed emergency phone calls from schools across the state indicating erroneous active shooter scenarios. Baines says the first call originated in Clinton County at around 8.30 a.m. It is a phone call that is a hoax by design. Uh, The design of it is to create uh, confusion and chaos. It's to suck up law enforcement resources to try to draw a large law enforcement presence to a school Um, even though there is no active threat. Creston Police confirmed late Tuesday morning that the Union County Law Enforcement Center received a call at around 10.30 a.m. from an unknown male reporting a shooting at Creston High School. Officers arriving at the scene found no evidence of a shooting. Superintendent Mike Wells also confirmed to KMA News that a similar swatting call was received at the Essex School District. Stay tuned. Leaders of KMA Land Financial Institutions were among those taking notes of some recent bank closures. Two weekends ago, California-based Silicon Valley Bank, a lender of some of the biggest names in the technology world, became the largest bank to fail since the 2008 financial crisis after the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, took it over. That same weekend, regulators shut down Signature Bank in New York to prevent a crisis in the broader banking system. Bank Iowa President and CEO Jim Plagey is among the industry leaders reacting to the closures. Plaguey says some unique circumstances led to the two banks ultimately collapsing, particularly for SVB, which had been specializing in serving venture capital, private equity, and startup firms. So they were very vulnerable, very, very exposed in that area, uh, had a small number of very large depositors affiliated with private equity, startups, uh, venture capital. And so for them, they had a huge amount of exposure to large amounts of deposits leaving at the same time or, or in, a, in a very tight time frame. I think, you know, well over about 90% of their deposits were uninsured by the FDIC because they exceeded the 250000 limit. Meanwhile, for Signature Bank, Plaguey says the bank's strong ties to the turbulent cryptocurrency industry also likely attributed to regulators shutting down the bank. Particularly for SVB, Plaguey says the Federal Reserve's constant interest rate hikes in recent months to combat inflation have drastically impacted the money flowing into venture capital and startups. Thus, less less money flowing into the bank. A lot of uncertainty in the market that is causing the typical investor in those types of things to really sit tight. And then secondarily, as we said, with interest rates moving up, they can earn a decent return on on their cash by just simply sitting on it. So between uncertainty and higher interest rates, it's really had a significant impact on the amount of money flowing into private equity and venture capital. And when that flow of money slowed down and almost to a stop, then the funds incoming to Silicon Valley Bank slowed down as well. Additionally, whatever cash isn't kept by the bank, Plaguey adds typically goes to long-term treasury bonds that can be profitable when interest rates are low but are at the mercy of the Federal Reserve. However, Plaguey expects Iowans to feel a little more pressure from the recent turmoil in contrast to the large banks. Community banks such as Bank Iowa have a more diversified group of depositors with more modest deposit amounts. You know, almost all of our deposits are under that $250,000 FDIC insurance threshold. So, uh, you know, in, in times of turmoil, almost all of our depositors' funds are going to be insured by the FDIC. So, 
as a result, that would that would reduce the risk of a community bank such as Bank Iowa having a run on deposits. But he adds that some of the larger depositors have diversified when they keep their funds to stay within the FDIC cap. Thus, Plaggy says he wouldn't be surprised to see the FDIC or a private insurance company begin advocating for an increase in the $250,000 insurance cap for business deposits. Page County conservation officials are exploring a drone use policy in and around county parks. That comes after discussion to the Page County Conservation Board's latest regular meeting, where Conservation Director John Schwab formally introduced a policy limiting where drones could be flown within county parks. Schwab told KMA News the board has been looking into a policy of the past couple of months and tailored their version off of others in place around the state. He says discussions arose during the county's current lack of drone regulations near its parks. Someone could you know, dry, fly a drone through a campground or, you know, kind of other areas where other people might be, you know, enjoying the parks. Um, so we just, we put the policy in place or proposed policy um, just to kind of make it to where everyone, everyone can still enjoy the parks. They can still do their different activities. Um, and it's not going to cause a problem with it. Primarily, Schwab says the policy prohibits using such items within Nottoway Valley Park in the Pierce Creek Recreation Area. He adds this is mainly due to the equestrian trails and offerings in those areas. We didn't want to have a situation where we've got a drone that's near a horse. Um, it was just there was a lot of liability there. Um, the last thing we'd want to do would see someone be injured. Um, so those are the reasons we've excluded those two parks. Per the proposed policy, the operation of a drone or an unmanned aerial vehicle also needs to be a minimum of 100 feet from prohibited areas, including campgrounds, parking areas, shelters, and boat launches within any park. Schwab adds that most drone usage around the county's parks appear near Rapp Park due to the large open area. For the most part, he says the public input in the policy thus far has been positive. There's a couple groups around um, Page County and the surrounding areas that fly drones and planes. Um, they were 100% for it. Um, they kind of looked at it as this will just put some rules in place to kind of stop, you know, anyone that might might have been messing around with drones, um, you know, or operating them in a not responsible manner. Schwab says the board plans to vote on the drone policy at its regular monthly meeting in April. Clarinda school officials are making temporary provisions for a vacant retail facility. By a unanimous vote late Wednesday afternoon, the Clarenda School Board approved an agreement with Steinbeck and Sons of Griswold for renting space in a portion of the former Shopco building at 1180 South 16th Street at a cost of $1,500 a month. Board President Darren Sundeman says the rental agreement is only temporary. Uh, they're looking to expand in Clarenda. Uh, they would love to have built a building, but they're just on a tight time frame. I mean, spring is basically here. They just need a place to store soybeans and corn for seed, and they will operate out of that north side of the Shopco building, not interfering with Lyles and Unlyles. Corporation is aware of it. The agreement comes as board members are exploring the fate of the building, which was acquired three years ago for $400,000 for use as a CTE facility. Board member Scott Honeyman, however, says it's time for the board to make a decision on the structure's future sooner rather than later. We've had the building for a while now, and some of the initial intent behind it hasn't panned out as how we would hope it would have. Renting the space, and we're renting sure. it now to cover some of the costs that we own it, but... I don't think renting space is a long-term long mm-hmm. solution for a district. Board member Paul Boyson called for the building's appraisal so that it could be sold. When I took school finance a long time ago, the professor at Drake was an older guy, and he said there's 
one thing school districts should never do, and that's be a landlord. And I have remembered that. One, it's not our building, and we're not not trained to be landlords or trained to be educators. After further discussion, Clarinda Superintendent Jeff Privia said he would contact a commercial firm outside of the community to conduct an appraisal. Board members' consensus was that any proceeds from the building sale would be used for future facilities projects. Expansion and renovation plans for the Hamburg School District's facilities are on hold following an unsuccessful bid letting. Earlier this week, the Hamburg School Board rejected all three bids for the comprehensive upgrades at Marnie Simons Elementary School. Voters in February approved a $3.1 million bond issue for construction of an 8,000-square-foot fitness center serving both students and local residents, a 250-seat auditorium for both student and community performances, and construction of two additional classrooms to meet the demands for the district's makerspace programming for K-8 students. Hamburg School Superintendent Dr. Mike Wells told KMA News the bids exceeded the project's estimated cost. So we passed a bond issue for $3.1 million, and the architects were anticipating $4.6 million, somewhere in that area. Uh, the lowest bid was $7.6 million. The highest was $9.4 million. And Wells attributes the bid letting's failure to increase material costs as well as contractors themselves. These contractors, they have you in a bad place. They don't need the work. They're all busy. So they throw absolutely ridiculous bids at you and assuming you're just going to do the projects. And we aren't going to waste taxpayers' money. We'll figure out a way to do it but within our budget. Well, says the board's next option is separating the projects for individual consideration. School officials plan to use physical plant and equipment levy or secure an advanced vision for education or save funds to cover any additional project costs. Nebraska City officials this week secured an experienced government official as the next city administrator. By unanimous vote Monday evening, the Nebraska City City Council appointed Perry Mader to succeed Lou Leone, who resigned late last year. Currently City Administrator in Mitchell, Nebraska, Mader was selected over another finalist, William DeRoos, currently the City Administrator in Schuyler. Mader was among 14 original applicants for the position. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Tuesday morning, Nebraska City Mayor Brian Beckett says Mader brings excellent credentials to the community. Perry's got a great background in city government. He was a longtime Parks and Rec director for Scotts Plus. Had a little bit of time up in South Dakota as a Parks and Rec director and then came back to Nebraska and has been the uh, city administrator out in Mitchell for the last three-plus years. We just really liked his background, his experience, and uh, when he interviewed, we just thought he'd be a great fit for Nebraska City. Beckett says Mader is excited to move to Nebraska City. He's really excited about moving to Nebraska City. He really dovetailed a lot of his experience as a smaller department head and as a smaller city administrator, but on the things that where Nebraska City is headed in the future with a creative district and some of the housing and things like that, where he really brought experience on those areas and uh, a lot of enthusiasm and excitement to kind of move forward with it. Mader's tenure begins April 10th. City traffic engineer and construction manager Marty Stolval has served as interim city administrator since Leone's departure. Councilman Members also appointed Katie Drake Hang as city treasurer under a realignment of city hall staffing. Drake Hang will serve under Randy Dunster, who is now city clerk. 
Meanwhile, Clarinda officials this week launched the search for a city clerk treasurer. Meeting in regular session Wednesday night, the Clarinda City Council approved the job description and authorized city staff to begin the search process of filling the position. Currently, city manager Gary McLarnon also serves as clerk and treasurer. McLarnon says the two positions used to be separate until April of 2007, when the city consolidated the roles into one due to being in a financial bind. Now, McLarnon says he wants to separate the positions as he contemplates retirement in the coming years and allow for a smooth transition. You know, I could retire in a year. I'm not planning on it right now, but I think we need to start the, the wheels in motion of my exit strategy. I think this is a good first step to go ahead and reestablish that position. McLarnon adds the majority of the cities in the area of a similar size also split out the positions, including Red Oak, Shenandoah, and Atlantic. Mayor Craig Hill says the position has been budgeted for in the upcoming fiscal year. During the evaluation that we did last year, uh, we have discussed this multiple times over the past several years that I've been on the council, both as a councilman and mayor, that we needed to separate these positions. And yes, it was, we did agree to put this in the budget starting the beginning of next year. Following the council's authorization to begin the process, McLarnon says he will search in-house first. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.